Chapter Five of Blake of the Rattlesnake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Blake of the Rattlesnake by Frederick T. Jane. Chapter Five. A Torpedo Boat Attack "'Bovary,' said Blake to me a few days later, "'that press-gang business has regularly fixed you up. You need the blue pill of excitement, as old Dr. Donarola used to put it, so I've secured a nice little job for you.' "'What's in the wind now, sir?' I inquired. "'I welcome anything to vary the monotony of hanging about idle in this infernal hole.' "'Well, you'll get it tonight in plenty, anyway,' he replied, "'as I volunteered to lead a torpedo-boat attack, which ought to give us something to think about for a long while to come.' His words were prophetic enough, though in a way we little thought of them. The projected attack was on Cherbourg. Two or three attacks had been made on this place, either from Portland or Alderney, but each had been a disastrous failure.' and this in which we were about to take part was rather of the nature of a forlorn hope. It was designed more with a view to harassing the enemy than with any more definite and serious object, though of course we were not told that at the time. There was the usual call for volunteers, and six boats were selected for the enterprise, the three eighties that the Ratto acted as division boat to, a couple of seventies, and number sixty-five, which Blake took command of. This boat was the only survivor of the sea flotilla, and the lieutenant who commanded her having been killed, and the sub sent ashore wounded, I took the latter's place. "'I don't mean to be destroyed by catchers, if I can help it,' said Blake, when we had all gathered in the stuffy little cabin to settle the plan of campaign. "'All torpedoes, except those in the eighties, are to be set for four-foot depth only,' so you'll be able to fire at catchers without sending your torpedoes under them. And don't fire till you're within a cable's length at the outside. Better not fire at all than fire from too far away and miss. One torpedo got home is worth a dozen wasted in the water, you know, so just all of you remember it. I shall be round shortly to see that everything is all right. There must be no bungling over tonight's business.' An hour or so later Blake went round the boats, testing and inspecting everything, then, our preparations being complete, we steamed out through the hole in the wall, and slowly along inshore. "'Blenheim will accompany you. No other British cruisers out,' came a semaphore as we left, and presently in the growing dusk we made out the great cruiser coming up, keeping some two miles astern and about the same distance to starboard of us. Number 65 leading, we kept along for some hours in single column of line ahead, going a good sixteen knots, and leaving the cruiser farther and farther astern. The previous bad weather had abated, and the water was still and glassy, a dead black sheet, save for the phosphorescent gleams that licked our bow and shot across the little streaky waves we left in our wake. It was a dreamy, peaceful night, in strong contrast to the errand of death on which we were speeding, 
the sort of night that one involuntarily associates with peace and love, the sort of night that makes those at sea think gently of loved ones in the far away. So thought I, as I reviewed in my mind a little romance of my own, wondering whether someone would, on my account, scan the morrow's papers with quickened pulse and bated breath, reading of how we had distinguished ourselves, or perchance dropping a tear if my name were in the list of those who would come back never more. Then insensibly my mind turned to Blake and his love affair, into which I had had such strange involuntary insights, and being in a curious mood, I began to vaguely query whether I should sometime learn the end of it all. And even as I wondered, the man himself joined me where I sat on deck, near the standard compass, keeping an eye on the boats astern. Our nerves were strung to a high state of tension, and I remember, as though it were yesterday, how we held our hands over our pipes, lest perchance an enemy's cruiser should sight the glow. We had sat in silence some little time, when the skipper leaned over in my direction. "'Look here, Bovary, old man,' said he. "'I mayn't come out of this job.' and if I lose the number of my mess, and you don't, I'd like you to send the packet in my inside pocket to the address that's on it. And stay, you can do me another service, too. You remember when we boarded the Valletta the other day, how I was knocked all of a heap. Miss Monckton, who, as I told you, was my fiancée, had been hit on the head by a bit of shell, but after they'd dressed it she seemed all right, and came on deck again when the firing ceased. She was there when the devu went down. The wound must have affected her brain in some way, however, or else that awful sight did, for she had to be taken below again quite delirious, and when her father led me to where she lay in a half-faint, and told her I had come, she roused herself, shrieking that I was a murderer, and so on. After a while she got quite hysterical, and didn't even know me. So I did the wisest thing, and came away, and didn't see her again until that unfortunate episode last night. I suppose it's fate that I should appear to her as a cold-blooded butcher. But I want you, if I go under, to try and see her, to try and explain how I am not what fate has made me seem, and— you understand what it is, I feel? A fellow doesn't like to put it all into words. I promised to do as he wished, and began making some ordinary enough remarks, to the effect that I hoped things would come all right, and so on, when I was interrupted by the lookout man near me, calling in a sort of stage whisper, "'Warships on the starboard bow!' Away to the southward, faintly discernible by night-glasses, were three vessels steaming slowly in station. "'Frenchmen!' cried Blake. "'Man and arm ship!' I had no time to look about me for the next five minutes, but I could hear the whistles signalling to our flotilla, and presently we altered station. We were going to head off the enemy and sink him as he came up. My tubes—I had the forward pair—being trained to starboard— I got a good view of the coming fight. The enemy had not seen us as yet, and moving at slow speed, there was nothing to indicate our presence to them. On they came, three ships, each about four cables astern of the other, 
the sternmost, larger than the rest, looked like a battleship or first-class cruiser, and her Blake singled out as our special prey. Our dispositions were quickly made. We intended to wait in two columns ahead of them, till they should come up between us, unless they should spot us and open fire before, in which case our whole flotilla would attack, and trust to luck. When the ships were yet a mile or so away, they sighted the Blenheim, and made some signals in her direction, whereupon she immediately put on full speed towards them, signalling as she went. "'Cue to the Blenheim to occupy their attention,' said Blake. "'Wants to get a look in, too, sir,' called out a sub from one of the eighties. "'Let's go at them now, sir!' He had hardly ceased speaking when the leading cruiser burst into flame. A torrent of shot whistled over our heads, and at the same moment number seventy-two, which was commanded by a sub named de Warn, who was more than anxious to distinguish himself, started off at them full speed without waiting for any orders. The next ship now began to fire as well, and off we all went in their direction. But a detour was necessary, as our quarry, instead of waiting to be attacked, came slap-bang at us. We had hardly started, however, before we saw the Blenheim close to them, sending up rockets and signalling, and presently they ceased to fire. "'By God, they are our own cruisers!' shouted Blake, and we made as hard as we could pelt after young DeWarn, whistling and flashing to him to come back. But it was too late. A great dimly white column shot up from the bow of the leading cruiser, followed by the sullen boom of an exploding torpedo, and then we came within hail of DeWarn's boat, returning to see what damage she had inflicted. "'I guess this means promotion, sir!' he sang out to Blake as we passed each other. "'Promotion! You cursed young fool! You've blown up one of our own ships! Come and see what mischief you have done!' Our men came tumbling up from below, whither they had been sent to lie down under as much cover as they could find, and we got the dinghy ready to launch. It is one thing to destroy an enemy, another to see one's own countrymen struggling for life. The cruiser, she turned out to be the forte, was settling down at the bow, and we could see her crew getting out the boats in great haste. The Blenheim and other ships were soon near the spot, playing their searchlights on the wreck while all of them were sending boats, and we were in hopes of getting all the crew safe away, when suddenly, and without warning, the forte plunged under, carrying with her many of the ship's boats, and also number 85, which had been badly damaged in the attack. De Warn, who up to this moment had been standing by his quartermaster, staring like a dazed man at the wreck, suddenly threw up his arms, and with an awful shriek plunged into the sea, and we saw him no more. Poor boy! He and many a brave sailor have been sacrificed to a signalman's blunder. Our half-trained and overworked signalman had misread that last semaphore about ships in the channel as we left Portland. The signal really made was, "'All ships out, in groups of three at four cables.' will show green light before firing on torpedo-boats. The Admiralty, with a view to avoiding disasters of this sort, had made elaborate arrangements similar to the above. 
signalman like everything else could not be made in a day out of the raw material supplied to the fleet this sort of mistake we had most of us met with in manoeuvres but then everybody considered it a good joke but now the senior captain after consultations with the others decided to go on with the attack on the french so after half an hour's delay we started off again from portland to cherbourg is roughly about seventy-five miles steaming at an average of sixteen knots an hour and allowing for the delay caused by the sinking of the forte we expected to be off the place about two thirty a m leaving the cruisers behind for a rallying point our five remaining boats steamed on some boats from alderney which was very closely watched by the french were supposed to make a feint to attract the attention of the catchers guarding cherbourg but of this attack we neither saw nor heard anything after an hour's steaming blake reckoned that we were off the place so we reduced speed but nothing was visible then all of a sudden two black objects rapidly increasing in size appeared in the water ahead a moment later we were bathed in the blinding glare of searchlights we scattered to try and avoid the rays they could not succeed in keeping all of us under observation and our boat managed to do this blake was steering the boat himself standing on deck as it was impossible to work her properly from the conning tower and he and the warrant officer mr hacker who had the after torpedo tubes were the only persons on deck besides myself in less time than it takes to write one of the destroyers was abreast of us and as she passed i fired the port torpedo which was set for four feet only a regular tempest of shot hailed round about us at the same moment and i saw mr hacker fall back from his tubes and slide through the railings into the water the skipper i could not see but on running aft i found him all of a heap on the deck though still grasping the steering wheel taking the gunner's place i waited till we passed the other destroyer which got her searchlight on us at that instant i believe i discharged the torpedo then the whole thing collapsed and i was left in darkness while far astern i could make out the catcher still unhurt with her light on number seventy four and that was the last seen of that boat but another of ours must have come up and torpedoed the enemy for she disappeared though in the noise and racket of firing i did not notice any explosion blake still lay at the steering wheel amid the shattered remnants of the after conning tower and from the engine hatch came a cloud of scalding white steam so that passage forward was now impossible i sang out to the men in the bow and after several attempts heard an answering hail then going below to the wardroom yelled through the voice tube to the engine room but there was no response getting on deck again i sighted one of the eighty boats steaming slowly towards us in little better plight than ourselves her skipper tried to get us in tow i believe but it would have fared ill with both of us had not one of our cruisers come up just in the nick of time for the men forward now cried out that we were sinking the skipper of the eighty boat who had made one or two ineffectual efforts to come alongside sang out to us to be ready for a boat that was coming from the cruiser and i now remembered our poor skipper whom i had forgotten in the perplexities of the situation 
I raised him to see if he yet lived, but he lay as a dead weight in my arms, and his coat was soaked with blood. I held him thus till the Andromach's boat, which had taken off the blue jackets forward, came round to our stern, and two of her crew jumping on board us, carried the skipper into the stern-sheets, while I hastily scrambled after them, fainting away almost as soon as I had done so. I can just remember waking as we reached the cruiser, and seeing lanterns held over the side as our skipper was hoisted up over, but when I took the man-ropes my strength failed me, and I had to be taken over the side in the same fashion as Blake. A couple of days later the Andromach put into Portsmouth, and we, that is, Blake and I, were sent to Haslar Hospital, which was full of wounded men, as also were all Miss Weston's homes. Blake had fainted from loss of blood, having been wounded in the left arm by a bullet, while a fragment of shell had hit his back. They put me and a cot alongside the skipper, for though I had received no actual wound, the torpedo-tube, when the shock knocked it round, had bruised and crushed me all over, and we made a sorry pair. My mother came to see me here. Poor little mother! All her three sons had gone to serve queen and country, and one lay wounded at Haslar, while another slept beneath the ocean. My surviving brother was a lieutenant in the Blue Marines, and hitherto faint had spared him. I shall tell his story later. There were a great many nurses about the ward, many evidently lady volunteers, who, with gentle, sympathetic touch and soothing voice, did much to calm and allay the suffering around them. There were occasional visitors, too, and dimly I remember seeing, in my half-delirium, a tall and stately woman bending over the unconscious Blake. She seemed to be always watching him, till I began to wonder whether, after all, she was aught but a creation of my fevered brain. I was one day idly staring at her thus, half envious of Blake, when, seeing my gaze fixed upon them, she came towards me and spoke. "'You are one of Lieutenant Blake's officers, are you not?' "'Then,' she went on, as I assented, "'will you do us both a favour? Never tell him what you have seen. Promise!' I promised, and I kept my word." Next day Blake had recovered consciousness, but his strange visitor had disappeared altogether, and to this day I cannot be sure who she was, whether she was Miss Monckton or another, or even whether the whole scene were aught but an invalid's hallucination. End of chapter.